X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jeff Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Tuesday, January 19th. It is a great day to subscribe to The Local. We'd certainly appreciate it. Please do subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. If you are a subscriber, what are you supposed to do? I'm not sure, but I think a good idea would be to ask a friend to join in the fun and the information. X-Ray. Be a local evangelist. You can find us on all the platforms through Linktree backslash the local Portland. Today, back in the day, January 19th, 1920, the American Civil Liberties Union was formed. The ACLU is a nonprofit intended to, and I am quoting, defend and preserve the individual rights and liberties guaranteed to every person in this country by the Constitution and laws of the United States. The founding committee included lawyers and activists like Roger Nash Baldwin, Crystal Eastman, and Helen Keller. The organization was founded in response to the Palmer Raids. Ordered by President Woodrow Wilson, the Palmer Raids were a series of arrests targeting suspected leftists. The ACLU quickly began expanding its scope to protect free speech, fight discrimination, and act against police misconduct, among other issues. The ACLU saw a spike in membership and donations after the 2016 election. It currently has 1.2 million members nationwide. Today, back in the day, January 19, 1977, Gerald Ford pardoned Eva Toguri Dikino. Eva Toguri was born in Los Angeles in 1916. Her parents were Japanese immigrants. Toguri traveled to Japan to visit a sick relative. While there, the Japanese army attacked Pearl Harbor. Toguri was not allowed back into the United States. While in Japan, Toguri was declared an enemy alien for refusing to renounce her U.S. citizenship. Eventually, she was selected to host the propaganda radio program The Zero Hour by the Japanese government. The radio show was meant to be an English-language broadcast that promoted support for the Japanese army and undermined and slandered the United States and allies. It was produced and written entirely by prisoners of war. Taguri and her producers succeeded in creating a show that was practically void of propaganda. Instead, she hosted a variety of comedy sketches and music. She was properly known by her audience as Tokyo Rose but actually DJed under the name Orphan Annie. Toguri, now Dekino, was arrested after the war and kept in prison for six years for treason. Twenty years later, in 1976, the Chicago Tribune discovered that two key witnesses in her trial had perjured themselves, apparently at the direction of the FBI. In 1979, in his last day in office, Gerald Ford pardoned Tokyo Rose and restored her citizenship. She passed away from natural causes in 2006. Today, back in the day, January 19, 1837, Philip Leggett Edwards signed a receipt for investments in the Willamette Cattle Company. Before 1837, all cattle in Oregon were owned by Hudson Bay Company. The company would lease cattle out to settlers, but wouldn't sell them. Settlers wanted to keep cows for the beef and for trading purposes. To meet this need, the Willamette Cattle Company was founded in January of 1837. The plan was to buy cattle from California and sell them to settlers in Oregon. At that point, Oregon was jointly occupied by the British and the Americans. The U.S. thought that by supporting cattle sales, the American population in the region would increase. That would help the United States' claim to the territory. January 19th, John McLaughlin made an investment in the new cattle company. It might be hard to say why, as he was the chief factor of the Hudson's Bay Company. Maybe he wanted to hedge his bets. Or maybe he wanted a street named after him 100 years later. Shortly thereafter, the Lamont Cattle Company set out to get 700 Longhorn cattle. They came back in October 630 and quickly sold them. Shortly thereafter, the Willamette Cattle Company set out to get 700 Longhorn cattle. They came back in October with 630 and quickly sold them. 
Today, we will have your weekly Portland City Council update, also an interview with Emily Green, Managing Editor of Street Roots on the Portland Street Response Program. X-Ray. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Martin Luther King Jr. Day in Portland was recognized. Hundreds of people turned out in Portland to honor Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the most famous and honored man in America with three periods typically in his name. Some rallied and marched, others cleaned up litter across the city. Teresa Rayford, former mayor candidate, found her Don't Shoot Portland, spoke to a group at Peninsula Park. Literature by John Lewis, Frederick Douglass, and Martin Luther King himself was distributed. The group marched from the park down Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard and ended the statue of King at MLK and Northeast Holiday Street. Over 300 others found out across the city filling bags with litter from the streets. 400 others turned out to the Scanner Breakfast, the 35th annual recognition and celebration of Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, held virtually this year. Governor Kate Brown, Mayor Ted Wheeler, Senators Jeff Merkley and Rod Wyden all spoke. The keynote speaker was General Arthur T. Dean, Executive Chairman of the Community Anti-Drug Coalitions of America. Dean had this to say, Dr. Martin Luther King was a drum major for peace emphasizing King spoke about the importance of collective work to benefit all within the community. And by the way, let's clarify one thing for everybody tweeting about Martin Luther King. If you're not for voting rights, but you claim to be for Dr. King, do a little research about some of his most important work. And now it's time for your daily dose of data. On Monday, the Oregon Health Authority announced 666 new cases of COVID. The state's total is now 133,851. There was one death. Our death toll is now 1,811. Meanwhile, health providers plan mass vaccination site at Oregon Convention Center for this Wednesday. As we shared last Friday, Oregon's biggest healthcare providers plan to launch mass vaccinations, and it's happening this Wednesday. Kaiser Permanente, Legacy Health, OHSU, and Providence are all collaborating. Kaiser and OHSU will launch the site tomorrow, January 20th, for 1A eligible community members. Vaccinations will be by appointment only, and they will administer as many doses as supply will allow. Eventually, providers hope to vaccinate 25,000 Oregonians per day. OHSU also announced it will again host invite-only drive-through vaccination clinics for about 3,000 SEIU and independent home health care workers, first responders, and community health workers. Environmental activists in Washington shut down a new coal terminal. Activists have been fighting against over 20 proposals to turn West Coast ports into nexus points for the global fossil fuel trade, and they've had some success. Climate Solutions, a Seattle-based environmental group, joined with community groups and First Nation bands to focus on to focus on fossil fuel shipments that impacted mostly marginalized communities. The sheer amount of people who showed up to protest the encroachment of fossil fuels turned out to be effective. The success of these efforts have stemmed from the mid-2010s when activists reached outside traditional alliances to fight against fossil fuel interests. Grassroots efforts saw thousands showing up to protest over the last decade. There's still a large fossil fuel industry presence in the Northwest, but so far activists have saved the carbon equivalent of five Keystone XL pipelines. Thank you for that reporting by Robert McClure from Investigate West. An Oregon House bill would apply higher standards for trans-Pacific telecommunications infrastructure. Last year, Facebook failed in an attempt to lay down a trans-Pacific telecommunications line that would have connected to the Oregon coast. Facebook subsidiary Edge Cable Holdings 
tried drilling off the Oregon coast failed and left 1,100 feet of pipe and 6,500 gallons of lubricant behind. House Bill 2603 would make telecommunications companies file specific plans for installing and cleaning up undersea cables and equipment. The bill was proposed by Representative Dave Gomberg, whose district includes the unincorporated town Facebook drilled at. The legislature will meet to vote on this bill and a variety of others on January 22nd. Portland homes for sale have dropped to their lowest level ever, and I don't mean price. Right now, the winners are the people that are willing to let their homes get sold. High demand for living space during the pandemic, coupled with the lowest number of houses available, has made it tough to purchase. The trend has been continuing for years as houses get brought up in the Portland metro area. Dustin Miller of Windermere has this to say, We are well beyond a crisis now. Compared to this time last year, the median cost to buy a home in the Portland metro area jumped 7.3% just in a year, from $410,000 to $440,000. Washington County zip codes are continuing to become more and more popular as bidding wars and fast offers are growing increasingly common in the city. And some good news. Ursula K. Le Guin to be featured on a 2021 postage stamp. Influential science fiction writer and longtime Portland resident Ursula Le Guin will be honored this year with her image and a scene from one of her novels on a stamp. Le Guin died three years ago at the age of 88, and it's continued to inspire audiences with her fantastic literature. The Postal Service noted that Le Guin, quote, expanded the scope of literature through novels and short stories that increased critical and popular appreciation of science fiction and fantasy. On the stamp, a picture of her will be in the foreground of a scene of her landmark novel, The Left Hand of Darkness. The U.S. Postal Service hasn't said when it will issue the stamp, which will be the 33rd in the Literary Arts series. The stamp's postage value will be three ounces. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. It's time for our weekly City Council update. Here is X-Ray's Sam Smargiazzi with this week's happening in Portland City Council. This is your weekly City Council update. All right, welcome to your weekly city council update. The previous week of January 13th was rich in land use ordinances. Here's what our commissioners passed. On Wednesday, commissioners declared the Forest Park Northwest 31st Avenue shed property surplus real property, which allowed the sale of the property, of course. This was not without discussion. Commissioner Joanne Hardesty inquired about how land could be considered surplus when the city could use it to create spaces for the homeless population. Ultimately, this ordinance passed, but Commissioners Hardesty, Carmen Rubio, and Dan Ryan promised to collaborate to ensure consideration of the homeless population in the future. Council then went on to approve the application for the affordable housing tax exemption of the Cathedral Village Partners housing project at the 1575 North Willis Boulevard location. All 44 units will be considered affordable. Commissioner Hardesty inquired about sizing, encouraging equity in the square footage for affordable housing. She said, quote, Just because you're poor doesn't mean you need less space. On Thursday, the battle of the Hyatt Place building continued. The widely criticized 23-story building proposal in the heart of the Pearl District was approved by the Portland Design Commission after making a handful of adjustments. 
Those adjustments included setting back the middle of the building by three feet. The top northwest corner was set back seven feet, and balcony canopies were extended to six feet. A lot of numbers there. The saga continued on, will continue on February 10th when council will meet again for the adoption of findings. That's it for this week's Portland City Council update. For information about agendas and virtual meetings can be accessed at portland.gov forward slash auditor. Portland Street Response, the community-driven safety and emergency response team, has begun training and is set to launch next month in February. The program has been a long time in the making. Emily Green, managing editor of Street Roots, joined Julia Oppenheimer and Andy Lindbergh to discuss the new program. Here are Emily, Julia, and Andy. Portland Street Response, the community-driven safety and emergency response team, has begun training and is set to launch next month. The program has been a long time in the making. Here to tell us more about Street Response's pilot program is Emily Green, Managing Editor at Street Roots. Good morning, Emily. Good morning, Andy. Thanks for having me on. Sure. So how does it feel seeing this uh, ground, groundbreaking program uh, that you uh, and the team at Street Roots helped to imagine finally taking off? You know, this is so exciting for everyone at Street Roots. Um, we originally proposed this idea back in March of 2019, and um, to see it actually happen is its just incredible. This doesn't happen often in journalism <laughs> that you can uh, see such a direct impact. Um, our issue coming out today, though, we do have some suggestions now that the program is getting off the ground that we are um, hoping the city will take into consideration. So can you tell us a little bit about Portland Street Response, just as an overarching in case some of our listeners haven't heard of what, what it is? Yeah, so um, as folks may recall, back in 2018, the Oregonian did a pretty expansive report finding that uh, more than half of all police calls are involving people experiencing homelessness. And most of those calls were really low-level behavioral health issues, lots of calls uh, going to camps, calls uh, regarding unwanted persons, quote-unquote. Um, and we just felt that police response to these calls was not the way to go. Um, down in Eugene, they have a program called Cahoots, um, which is, you know, non-police response. People come out and compassionately um, connect people to resources and solve problems on the ground that way. And so we began to try to envision what a program like that might look like in Portland. Uh, so we talked to a bunch of different agencies, people already doing some work, and designed um, an idea that would basically be run through Portland Fire and Rescue and would involve a team of a medic and then also a crisis worker, uh, no police, who could be dispatched through 911 to respond to some of these calls that really don't require a badge and a gun. Hmm. So... Um, that's that's kind of the um, crux of the program is really just to reduce the police response to these calls for service. Your timing is is great as far as like you were <laughs> yeah. ahead of the curve on the defund the police um, or Portland Portland Street response was. I know Cahoots has been getting a lot of national attention uh, since the the protests started. Um, 
did you stay involved in the program's development process? Um, I personally, I wrote the original report, um, and as a journalist, I kind of stepped back after that. Um, but Street Roots Advocacy Team, led by our executive director, Kaya Sand, and with a lot of help from Devon Pouncey, they really stepped in and launched a campaign, started pressuring the city. Um, Joanne Hardesty's office got behind the idea. Um, Tremaine Clayton, uh, the chat team leader over at Portland Fire and Rescue, has been behind the idea the whole time. And, and he is now actually on the Portland Street Response Team, which is really exciting because he's uh, worked with Cahoots down in Eugene. So it's, it's really um, kind of been a groundswell of support from the community as well. As soon as the idea was proposed, you know, so many people were just like, yes, <laughs> let's do this. Well, and what an interesting position to find yourself in, uh, you know, having been involved in the, the genesis of, of this and now as uh, a, a journalist to, to be on the outside, um, you know, looking in. And um, uh, what's that like to, to, to find yourself in the position of, of uh, you know, commenting on, on this, this program that, that you were involved in envisioning? You know, it's, it's exciting, and um, I'm just so, I guess, thankful that, you know, our little scrappy little street paper could put out a story and get so much response from the community. It's, it's really humbling, and um, everyone on the team who's been working so hard, you know, to see this become a reality, I think, while, you know, one part of it is celebrating, um, we're also very focused on making sure that the vision um, is seen through to, you know, what we imagined. Um, we do have some concerns that we, our editorial board has laid out in today's paper, which is hitting the streets soon um, with our vendors all around town. Uh, as we originally imagined, the teams would be a medic and maybe like a peer support specialist. Uh, trained in um, de-escalation and how to connect people to resources. And we think the city is off to a good start. They, they have a paramedic, um, but they're also using a credentialed social worker. And we're not opposed to that, but we'd really like to see the pilot project opened up to kind of reimagine what that crisis component can look like. Um, we think it could really benefit from involvement from some grassroots organizations, people with lived experience, uh, we feel would do really well in this role as well. Um, because the real issue is, is that if this program has too many guardrails and an overabundance of caution, um, it will always tend to skew back toward more police involvement. I mean, that's mm -hmm. what we saw happen over the years with Multnomah County's mental health crisis response partner, Project Respond. I mean, at this point, most of their calls inv involve a police response as well when they were initially created to um, move away from that. And that just absolutely cannot happen with Portland Street Response. So um, that's what we're urging the city to do is just to, you know, take this pilot program and be a little more creative with it and think about, you know, the different ways that this can, you know, be nimble enough to really um, handle the messiness of what crises can look like on the streets. 
Well, and that's that's a uh, again a, a curious uh, place to be, you know, on on the outside looking in. Uh, there's the Portland Streets uh, Street Response model is based off of a similar program from Eugene, I think. How successful has that program been? That uh, program's been very successful. They've um, they, gosh, I think it's like over twenty thousand calls a year. Um, I. <laughs> Oddly enough, I went to college uh, at University of Oregon down in Eugene mm-hmm. and bartended my way through college. And I actually, I used to call Cahoots when okay. um, we might have some behavioral health issues in and around the property of uh, the bar I was working at. And I was so impressed <laughs> with the program down there. And, you know, everybody in Eugene knew, you know, if, if you see somebody struggling with a mental health crisis, you don't call the police, you call Cahoots. Hmm. They'll come with a van, they'll offer the person some water, um, some resources, offer to take them somewhere, um, such as a shelter or, or um, a clinic. And it, it just, it makes so much more sense than, you know, an officer showing up. So you had mentioned that um, the Portland Street Response is going to have a social social worker on the in the van, is a, and you were kind of advocating for maybe instead of that having like someone who's been through the program or someone who's recovered is that what is how does cahoots do it um cahoots they have their own training program through the whitebird clinic and they are what's unique about cahoots is whitebird is a grassroots nonprofit that works with the city to do this program and that's where we see a real opportunity Um, for Portland Street Response, whereas we have the paramedic provided through Portland Fire and Rescue. Um, It would be great, and we're not saying there can't be social workers, um, but we think it would be good to experiment with some other um, ideas of what a crisis worker could be so that other person could be somebody from a grassroots organization that provides peer support. You know, there are a lot of mm-hmm. wonderfully trained peer support specialists, and those are people who have lived experience with um, mental health or substance use issues uh, who can really um, be effective at meeting folks where they're at and being able to empathize and um, just, you know, kind of serve as a more approachable response um, than, you know, approaching these situations with, you know, too much uh, concrete procedure because, you know, too much procedure we think would really just take the humanity out of what the program could be and it would make it difficult for responders to build the rapport with people experiencing homelessness that will be necessary for this team to really be effective. Keep the bureaucracy down. Keep the... Exactly. So you mentioned the training has already started. When is this program going to be, when is it going to be online? Yeah, training started this week, and it's set to launch in the Lentz neighborhood next month. So, and that is, so it, it excuse me, um, people can call, ni- if people call 911 in the Lentz neighborhood for a mental health crisis, this team will be, will be sent instead of the police. Is that correct? If there is no uh, criminal nexus and it's deemed safe, exactly. Um, It's going to be run through the Bureau of Communications. Another thing Street Roots is advocating for is that there eventually be uh, a separate number that can also dispatch Portland Street response so that callers can make the choice Mm -hmm. of if they want to call the police or if they want to call 
um, the street response instead, it would still go through the Bureau of um, Emergency Communications, which is a 911 call center. So they would ultimately decide. But we think it's important that people understand that there is an alternative. So right now, if you call 911, is it sort of up to the dispatcher? Or not right now, but once the once the program launches, will it just sort of be up to the dispatcher if they send police or they send Portland Street Response? Yeah, they're um, going through their own extensive training um, at the Bureau of Emergency Communications with their dispatchers to make sure that people um, are trained in figuring out, you know, who to dis- dispatch to which calls because they, they are wanting to be cautious and make sure that they're not sending the Portland response team to calls that could, you know, be potentially dangerous and do require a police response. That Well, this sounds very promising, very hopeful for the future. Um, Emily, thanks so much for, for informing us about this today. And we absolutely. can't wait to talk to you Thank about you it. Thank you for it's, letting me. Absolutely. Can't wait to talk to you about it once it's, uh, once it's in swing. Thanks to Emily for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing and giving a five-star review, and thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.